Hello, my name is Joshua Schmidt. I'm the producer of The Audit presented by IT Audit Labs. Today we're joined by Eric Brown and Nick Mellum to talk with our guest Matt Starland about 3D printing and some of the potential risks and rewards through the lens of InfoSec. Thanks for joining us. Please like, share, and follow the podcast for thoughtful conversations and a deeper look into the world of cybersecurity. Today, we are joined by Eric Brown, Nick Mellum, and Matt Starland. And uh, Matt's here today to talk about things uh, 3D printing, all things 3D printed related. We're going to get into some of the risks and rewards and talk about the intersection of 3D printers and cybersecurity and what's on the horizon. Um, so Matt, if you could kick it off and give us a little background. Uh, we had a, a game night at IT Audit Labs a few weeks back, and you had brought your 3D printer in, which kind of spurred this conversation. So maybe you could give us a little background on what got you interested in 3D printing and maybe some of the things you've made and the materials and all that good stuff. Sure. Thanks for uh, having me on again. I appreciate always joining with you guys here and talking all fun things, uh, technology and uh, other geek things like 3D printing here. So, yeah. Um, I got into 3D printing probably about two and a half years ago. A lot of this is spurred by, I would say, my kind of technology engineering, architecting mindset of just being able to build, uh, create things or um, find solutions to problems. And so, you know, what are some of those problems that exist maybe around your house? You have a, a broken uh, handle on some proprietary device or even um, some product you bought that doesn't have a, uh, an appropriate uh, carrying handle or uh, mechanism for it to be able to um, hang on a wall, um, just different uh, solutions like that. And so it's, it's I don't know, there's just an endless amount of possibilities that, that you can fix things with. And so I think that's kind of what really got me interested in it. And uh, you know, it's also kind of saving money because you can find your own solutions to um, problems that might exist around the house or just in general in life. I ran into that myself recently where we bought um, a set of dominoes to play Mexican train, but we didn't have the holders. And uh, we got the buddy of mine, Ryan Dirud, uh printed off the holders to, to play because you want to kind of hide the di the uh, dominoes that you have. It's pretty cool, right? You know, because otherwise you'd have to go out and try to find, you know, a, a set of those holders, which nowadays isn't hard to do because a lot of people print them and sell them on Amazon and such. But um, to be able to just rip them out uh, to, to play the game that night is pretty cool. Yeah, I just bought Hero Quest, which is a $100 board game with a lot of little trinkets and little tchotchkes that you used to play. I can see my kids you know, losing those or, or getting a hand a handle on those and misplacing them somewhere. Matt, are there any other uh, solutions or problems? Do you find yourself looking for problems that you can solve with your 3D printer? Yeah, for example, here, um, I, I, some of them are very minor. Um, I don't know for those of you out there that might have YubiKeys, I believe a, a previous podcast episode there was that uh, we talked and uh, got into uh, security keys, FIDO2 keys. And, um, you know, they're, they're really small, um, you know, about the couple inches long and, you know, only maybe a quarter of an inch thick. For example, I, you know, it's, it's hard to keep in a wallet or maybe you can keep it maybe in your backpack, but, you know, and they've got a little hole in it too. You could maybe put, um, hook it out to a lanyard, but I, I wanted to keep it in my wallet, but it's just not a very, I don't know, 
it, the it's shape an odd shape for a wallet. Right, exactly. Odd shape for a wallet. And so I'm like, well, there's got to be a better way to, you know, store this securely in my wallet so it doesn't slip out and fits in with all the other credit cards um, or other plastic cards to purchase things. And so um, what I did is I designed a little uh, plastic holder here about the size of a credit card um, that the YubiKey can slide into and then it's just easier to slide in and out of the wallet. So you know, I, there's nothing I can even think of out there on the market where I could go to a Target or a Walmart and find something as simple and basic as this, but saves time and a headache of maybe losing it in my wallet or falling out accidentally. Had another uh, friend here that uh, has an airplane um, and they have a little lip on uh, the concrete slab that they store their airplane in and um, needed some kind of a ramp to help push the airplane small uh, two-seater airplane into their um, hangar. And um, instead of trying to figure out and cut up a piece of wood and, you know, get all the angles right and doing that kind of, you know, maybe more manual hand tool process, um, was able to design a, you know, honeycomb style ramp like that to meet the, the size of the lip on the uh, concrete slab. And, um, made it out of these honeycombs to not waste material, but still maintain the strength. Um, so of course it's not this big, this is just a model of it. Um, but print it off, took it over there and was able to get the plane up the ramp, uh, these ramps and into the hangar. So a lot of custom applications that you just maybe can't find a solution in a store for. So that's really cool. And when, when you first started this, Matt, I recall, and this is probably applicable for Nick, um, you made some cat toys. I was waiting to say it. Take I knew Matt spends most of his time printing cats to cat toys. Yeah, <laughs> you know I. Miyagi. I discovered that my cat, uh, uh, first cat, I, well, I shouldn't say that I've ever had, but our family here, with now having kids, have ever had, was uh, you know finally broke down and got a cat for the family, and so we noticed that the cat really enjoyed springy material, kind of like the the filament that's used in three D printing that will might touch on here in a little bit. Um, and so I, I'm like, you know, how can we give, you know, create a, a fun toy for um, people to download online for free and, you know, put on maybe like on their refrigerator that a cat can come by and just play with. And so created this little custom figure. Um, looks kind of like a little person here with holding maybe like a fishing rod. It's got a little hole in it. Um, and it's designed to just take the raw filament for 3D printers and you just put it through the hands and bend it and it just hangs out the hands and it just has a springy type of, uh, you know, flexibility to it. And the cats will just come by and play with it all day long. It's, it's uh, yeah, again, did it really save me a lot of time in life, but it was still fun to engineer something like this and give some good entertainment to, I guess, the cat and the rest of the kids watching the cat play with it. So, Nick, do you think Mr. Miyagi would like that? <laughs> I think the cat would love that. So Matt, you, you're probably, you're kind of like a pioneer in the space. You're, you're, you're finding things that have a problem and you're, and you're fixing it on your own. You're not relying on other people to build you things. Yeah. Um, I, I think this goes back to like what I was saying before, you know, that engineering and architecting mindset, it, it's fun to find solutions to problems like this. And so there are a lot of great websites out there. Um, like, uh, thingiverse.com and printables.com. Uh, that has a lot of, you know, pioneers or engineering mindsets that uh, want to 
show the world, hey, uh, solutions to problems that they found or just, I guess, fun, you know, trinkets in general that you can go down, go out to those websites and download those models um, for free and print them off. Um, there are different um, licenses that people might put on their models to kind of help protect their intellectual property um, of their custom designs or original ideas that they made. Um, but a lot of it, um, too, some of them don't care if you print them off and sell them, you know, as part of your own company or on a, to f friends and family. So, um, yeah, I, I've, I've posted a few things out there um, on printables. You can find me at, at Crossman um, under printables. That's my profile. Um, and there's some examples out there, some custom things that I've made to, you know, just share with the world for if people have a particular product that I've that I've purchased and found a, a fun solution for to help save them some time or money, um, I put out there for them to download and um, uh, print. It does take some time and energy to make those things. And you want to use a, a particular like CADing software, either like Tinkercad, which is a very, I would say beginner type of CADing software, but it has its pros and cons compared to even a full-blown professional kind of software like uh, a Fusion, uh, Autodesk Fusion 360, um, or even like an open source uh, free CAD, um, because if you if the object that you're trying to make only has a few simple shapes, uh, Tinkercad makes sense because they give you the shape right there, and you can stretch it, uh, slim it down, um, and even cut out sections out of it. But again, it's like using basic shapes like a cylinder, a sphere, or uh, squares. Um, but then if you want to start getting into some really crazy engineering tasks where you're making gears, um, uh, you know, like almost like engine style type uh, engineering, um, that's where, you know, Tinkercad is, is going to fall short real quick. Matt, can you talk about the different types of 3D printers, right? There's a kind of one that, that you it's like dipped in in the stuff and then there's another one that uses the filament so, so maybe different applications of why you'd use one over the other yeah so the the two main uh ones that are out there are um the it's called sla i think it's stereolithography um that's what that stands for um and then fdm which is fused deposition modeling um fdm is where that takes a spool of filament. So for example, right here that I have, that I'm showing here, it's about a, um, it's one kilogram spool. Um, the material is about 1.75 millimeters thick. Um, and it, it runs that down into a hot end, they call it, heats up the material into a liquid. And then you have a motorized head that prints or makes layer by layer your object. So, you know, for example, looking, going back to this YubiKey holder again, um, it's hard to see on the camera here and with the details of how, all the little lines. But uh, I think from looking at this, there's probably about 20 different layers of material to make this. Um, and so it just puts down layer by layer um, where the SLA is a little different in which it uses like a, a small tub like a, a when i say a small tub like a i'm gonna say maybe um six inches wide by maybe a foot long and maybe eight inches deep um fair, there can be varying sizes but just to give you a, a general idea of that and then it's a liquid the, the material inside that is liquid 
And then there's a plate that starts at the bottom of that liquid and slowly pulls up while there's an ultraviolet light shining across the plate and that liquid to harden the material. So it almost looks like something out of Terminator 2, you know, getting created, being pulled slowly out of this bath and you see the object on there. Now, why the differences? Well, using that SLA, there are the details are, it looks like if it was the, the object that was created as if it was forged, like in a casing, something that you'd buy at the store, you know, like looking at like a Microsoft sculpt mouse like this. It's so perfectly smooth, the plastic, it came out of a mold. And that's what that SLA looks like too, when you print things. And it's really good for extreme details. Now, from what I understand, it hasn't caught up though with the different levels of material that exist. So compared to FDM. So with FDM, you have, um, I don't know, there's so many ABS plastics, PETG, PLA. Um, some of that PLA is reinforced with wood. So like this one here that I have, this, this brown spool, this is actually has 25% wood fibers in it. Um, so that way you can um, sand it down and stain it like real wood. Um, I have, there's other materials here that's a shiny silk material. Um, it almost looks metallic. Um, then there's even glow in the dark materials. So there's a lot of, I, I think a wider selection on the FDM and it's also less cleanup. You, you don't have to wash out a tub to put a new color in. Um, you can print multiple colors at different layers. Um, so some, something like the printer behind me here, you can see there's a spool up on this. Um, I've got room for another spool on here. Um, and some of these FDM printers have multiple heads. So you can configure the 3D printed object to say, hey, print blue at the first 10 layers, then red at this next set of layers. So you can get different colors involved. I have a 3D printer as well. Uh, they're a little bit different, <clears throat> right? So just maybe, you know, what's your take on an enclosed uh, 3D printer versus one that's enclosed, like specifically mine um, is a Bamboo Labs and, and it's enclosed, right? It has a door, glass top, um, glass front, but there's sides. Uh, is there a plus to that versus versus not being enclosed? Uh, definitely. I guess it depends on the type of applications that you're going to use, you know, to print. So, um, you know, one of the reasons why I went with this open one, um, which is a Prusa um, MK4, uh, part of that is because I wanted to do some of this 3D printing for some small business um, type stuff. And so um, it has a lot of the parts on this that you can see here in orange um, is all 3D printed. So Prusa 3D prints their own printers. Um, there are a lot of pieces on this printer that aren't 3D printed, but they try to do it, you know, to save manufacturing costs from going from to a third party. Um, and also to show that, look, this, th these types of printers handle a lot of stress, you know, lots of, you know, it's just constantly printing themselves. So they're self-replicating in a way. Um, and so the, if there's a part that's broken on here, well, hopefully I had the forethought to 3d print some of these parts ahead of time, you know, it, it that makes it easier to get to and fix. Now what's the downside? So you, you're talking about, you have more of an enclosed printer, um, that, that it isn't as maybe as, um, I would say customizable. Um, 
the 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 pro to the your enclosed printer is that there are certain materials, uh, for example, nylon, or maybe even carbon fiber, uh, that takes a high amount of uh, heat to um, find that melting point. And any bit of outside air, even if it's 75, 80 degrees in your house, that little bit of outside air can impact um, that material as it's extruding out of the hot end and it can cause it to start to warp, not adhere to the bed. And so having that enclosure allows that heat to stay trapped in there without getting that outside air to impact it. And so it starts to increase your different applications, but then if there's an issue with your printing, your printer, and you're, you know, you're trying to sell or you got maybe a, a, an order coming in and you're trying to get out so much, so many orders, some of those enclosed printers um, are a little bit harder to fix and time consuming. Um, where with this open one, it's easier to get to, but I might not have the same applications that I can you know, print with, but I can always add an enclosure to this, buy one later that you can build around it and easily take off and get to the printer's uh, parts to fix. So I know going back to your printer there, you, you sent a video to me of the company, right? And, and it's, and it's an awesome video to hear about their journey and how they're using a print farm to print the printers, right? And they send them out and you can get it in kind of two configurations, right? It comes put together. Or if you're, if you've maybe got a screw loose in your own head, you'll get it dismantled and you put it together. And, and I know you got it, you got it dismantled and you sent me pictures putting it together of a mess in the office, putting it, putting it together. How, how long did it take you end up taking you to get that, uh, that guy together? Yeah, you're right. I'm one of those that had a screw loose and I had lots of screws loose all over my floor too. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, part of that was like, I was saying before, because of, uh, you know, being able to understand how to fix it and repair it, I wanted to take that opportunity to understand how all the parts go together. So if I, I ever had a down printer, I have a general idea of how that was built or put together. So I, I, I was one of those that decided to put it all together. I, I had my entire office was littered parts all over the floor. I mean, every screw, every rod, it was, I don't know, there had to have been, maybe I'm shooting high here, but I, it felt like 700 pieces or more. Um, and of course you had, I had to connect all the um, electronic boards, hook all the electronic boards, run all the wiring, clamp down all the wires appropriately, um, connect the power supply. I mean, it was, it was like kind of 1970s, you know, garage style computing where, um, you're putting every piece together. Um, it was, it took me close to, I would say a month and a half spending maybe a couple of hours a night. And, and you even made it better than it, than it came out of the box. It sounds yeah, like. I actually did. I did do some tweaks to it to reinforce certain areas. So it wouldn't snap off the, uh, uh, cross member that sits above the frame on there. You were touching on the filament coming down into uh, the device or the printer. On top of there, what first off, what is uh, on there? And then secondly, you know, I think, and this is my limited knowledge in 3D printing or, or compared to yours, one of the things that can plague, you know, let's say PLA is humidity, right? So different environments, um, you could have different issues. It could lead to printing issues, um, you know, during and after the after effect. Are you doing anything to, you know, are you storing, let's say, your your uh, filament in a special way? 
Yeah, humidity yeah. is is a big part. Um, so, uh, for example, when I was showing you kind of that wood filament, you know, humidity and wood, not the greatest combination um, uh, of things. But yeah, for example, humidity plays such a big part that you want to store those like in some sort of bag um, to kind of keep that from that humidity from hitting it. So, for for example, here I've got just good old one gallon bags, and you got those you know silica packets, gel packets that you get from from any you know, uh, product that you buy that they want to keep, you know, dry as much as possible. So I save those. So then every spool I just throw in when I'm done with it to kind of keep it as dry as possible. But even then, you know, even just sitting out on the rack like this uh, for long periods of time, that humidity can affect it. And so a lot of the, the 3D printing manufacturers out there have their own what they call dryer boxes, their filament dryer boxes. So it's just a uh, um, you stick the filament in it and it's got heating coils all around and usually and sometimes a fan to help circulate the air. Um, and they have presets for the different types of material um, to help dry it out. And even it's got even like a um, uh, was a humidistat, I think, it, you know, it shows you the humidity level in there. And um, um, so you kind of know how dry it is at once it's finished or if you want to throw some more time on there to get it down to a certain percentage. But I've had filament sitting out for a year and a half um, without in a bag and it got very brittle and it just blobbed a lot. And so I threw it in there for maybe six hours, came out, it was almost like brand new again. Josh, what are you seeing in the music industry for 3D printed things? I imagine things like guitar picks or even that recorder that we got in third grade to play hot cross buns you could probably print <laughs> i personally haven't seen any anything show up on the market you know picks and, and things of that nature are usually stamped out or mm. or pretty probably a little more simple to make and the in the typical subtractive manufacturing that brings up a good point you know this has been called additive manufacturing, where we're adding layers of material to create an object. Whereas, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, maybe metal work or, or woodwork, that's more of a subtractive type of um, manufacturing where we're taking away pieces of a larger piece to create something new. Um, other than fun little studio things, it occurred to me as I was preparing for this that I did have a 3D printed um, toy <laughs> in my studio so this is a vibey little thing that you know gives me a little inspiration um i think it's a lithograph printed moon mat is that what the material would be called yeah well yeah it's probably the material it would be maybe a pla material but the the PLA. the um the term you're looking for that um gives that effect is called a lithophane Lithophane. Yeah. And you had shared uh, something that you had had at the uh, last uh, game night as well, uh, a photo of your family, which was pretty, pretty detailed uh, once you get a light behind it. Um, th this brings up a good point. You know, I think it's we're on the cusp of this becoming ubiquitous across, you know, all, all of our lives, whether you're a tech nerd or not. I feel like 3D printing is kind of on the verge, maybe where... AI was five years ago or pre-pandemic pre before it really started becoming used in our everyday life. Um, just doing some research for the show, you know, it occurred to me having conversations with Nick and Matt, you know, they're using these in dentist's office to, to produce, um, you know, the Invisalign braces. Um, but it's also provided, you know, 
quick and fast prototyping for manufacturing. It's also created um, an opportunity for these businesses to create localized products and um, optimize supply chains, uh, which is something I, I hadn't really thought of. So instead of you know loading up a truck full of gear and dropping it off across a region and having having uh, supply chain issues, you know, this is something we can be sharing open source or otherwise online and, and having businesses and manufacturing printing these parts in-house so that we're, we're kind of mitigating the amount of maybe carbon footprint or, or whatever your concern is, or cost even. Um, also, you know, customization of niche products or customization of products that you might require to get a job done like Matt uh, displayed with his uh, spool guide there. Uh, I think that's just a big opportunity and I'm excited to see what creative people bring to the table when customizing and, and creating open source options for people to solve problems. Also reduced, reduced waste, you know, um, with the additive manufacturing, you know, you're not having all that fallout material from, you know, the subtractive manufacturing process. And, you know, as we try to optimize, you know, our lives and, um, you know, make space for more people on the planet and, and utilize resources in a more efficient way, I think 3D printing will go a long way towards those goals and, and just maybe even enhancing the material strength or the flexibility of performance of materials that we already have out there. We've had, have you, have you guys thought of any of the other rewards that might be cropping up or, or advancements in this technology that you've seen in, in your life? Yeah, they're doing houses these days too. They're 3D printing houses. They started 3D printing organs, I believe. And I, I think there's a technology where they're looking at potentially 3D printing skin for burn victims, things like that. So lots of advancements in the, the medical industry and, and industry as well from what i saw and it's and it's going this goes back a while a ways back too, eric so you know it it seems to be finally maybe hitting more mainstream these days with that and and partially that's because going back to what you're just saying josh with it we're seeing it you know show up in so many different other corners of life from a dentist office the explosion in the last 10 15 years is is because of the the patent ran out into the or the it went public FDM uh, patents became public domain in 2009. So, you know, 3D printing has been around for 30 years, roughly, but it was owned by mostly by a company, uh, Stratasys. And, um, and so once that patent released, boom, the markets just exploded. And so that's why you, you start to see this now in every home and corner office and everything you can find. And, and, but so going back to your comment though, Eric, about the, um, you know, 3D printing uh, um, body parts. It, looking here, uh, from what I had documented, it's uh, 1999 was the first 3D printed bladder and it was made at Wake Forest. So going back to 1999 even, um, and then 2008, the first 3D printed prosthetic leg. So, you know, we're, we're going already 20 plus years ago and, and I'm it's going to just explode from here, just like you're saying, Josh, with AI. It I think it's going to slowly, you know, creep into our lives. Like I just noticed, I had this this little toy here in my studio. I think it's going to creep in, and before you know it, things that you don't even think of are going to be 3D printed, and they probably already are to a large extent. Um, that's some of the rewards, you know. But I'd like to shift the focus onto some of the risks and how this relates to cybersecurity. You know, as we were kind of approaching this topic, it turns out there's quite a bit of crossover and 
uh, quite a bit of study, whether it's with think tanks or organizations like IT audit labs that are starting to see some of these risks on the horizon where it when it comes to intellectual property or, you know, the integrity of, of a part that might be used in a manufacturing process. I mean, the mind goes wild thinking of all the ways that this could, you know, potentially show up as an exploitation in our lives. But is that something you guys have thought of or, or talked about or, or started to learn about? Sure. Yeah. When we think about that and we think about SCADA environments or industrial control environments, we typically see those separated from the rest of the organization's corporate environments. And, and the same would hold true here. You know, you're working at a company like SpaceX and you're producing highly scientific parts that are uh, going to be in extreme environments. You don't want to introduce any sort of um, thing that's outside of your span of control or outside of your direct influence. So having the 3D printed materials that you're using in, in your production environment on a separate, in a separate network, uh, separate data environments would be something that you would really want to have control over. Uh, but, I, but I think that just goes along with other industry that we've seen where we organizations will have those separate um, industrial control environments. I think there's a lot of a risk with this. And I was doing some thinking on my own, you know, how is this going to affect us coming up in the future? I don't think necessarily the actual what we print is going to be the issue, right? That's not the cybersecurity risk. The actual device is the cybersecurity risk, right? Right. We, we have all these things in manufacturing, right? They're making things much easier, much quicker. And, you know, if it's, a, let's say, a smaller organization, maybe they're not spending as much time on quality control, right? So they might miss issues that have been, you know, let's say they made a change to a file before it goes to the printer, right? Maybe there was some malicious, uh, whatever was added or it was changed, right? Now, as Matt was explaining, the layers of the print, right? Maybe they made a little bit of a space or an extra space. So the, the layers have a distance, a greater distance between the two of them. And and now you have added in less rigidity, right? The, the parts aren't as strong. And wherever those parts are going, right? They, they got a lot of parts before. They weren't an issue. Now they are. So you could have issues breaking, uh, what have you. So to to Eric's point, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of issues with what I was just talking about, but the actual device to me is the issue where Eric was saying put on another network. To me, the conversation is, you know, treating these as basically an IoT device, right? Uh, segregate them, uh, treat them as that and, you know, limited access to to the network. And Nick, too, you know, when you're talking about kind of those those types of risks of being an IoT device, so, you know, from the manufacturing world, devices like this, um, not 3D printing, but have been around for a while, CNC machines. And so you have big, you know, uh, manufacturing um, lines where people are taking intellectual property on a, you know, CAD style 3D file, uploading it to the machine, then you have the machinist working it. Now, how are they uploading it? Is it, you know, physically walking over there with a USB or some uh, SD card, whatever, or is it most likely network to make, you know, to keep things efficient and going? And so, so CNC machining has been around for a long time. Um, so that risk has always been there. But I think going back to what, now 3D printers is that now it's 
much more accessible, you know, to get this type of manufacturing. And you have so many different organizations or different companies that didn't have that manufacturing mindset, but they want to make something to help maybe their company or lives out. And they don't realize what the level of risk now they're introducing into their network or in their lives because that's something that's new to them. So, you know, for historically speaking, a lot of those types of manufacturing companies, they're going to understand that risk, the intellectual property that's being stored, maybe communicating back to the internet, wherever it might be. Um, but what we're seeing is that the, atta- the, the attack surface is just growing. So the, the same type of risk has existed with these types of devices or form of these devices. But now with everyone just, oh, let's get this and let's start making parts for our, you know, squad cars or let's make some, you know, these uh, dental, um, you know, Invisalign uh, uh, pieces for your, you know, your teeth and stuff. And so it's and not realizing that, oh, the, the dental office just threw it right on the network with the rest of the other computers that are connecting to the Internet. And it's 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 not that that device itself maybe created risk for the other devices, it's but it's the other way around is that now those devices connecting to the internet, their laptops or workstations actually created risk for the 3D printer as well because they didn't realize that when they're printing, there's stuff being cached on there, stored on there, something's got default credentials. And so while they might've been using a piece of software that was protected you know, from a, a malicious actor, maybe gaining access to those files on the local computer, maybe it was an, you know, a, an appropriate environment or space, but as soon as they hit print or upload, now it's on this IoT, not you know, not always the best security controls in the world uh, installed on there to look for malicious activity, and they used admin admin to hit to connect to the uh, web console on the device, and now it's take intellectual property. A few years ago, we saw there was a theoretical attack against pacemakers, where if you were in close enough proximity to the pacemaker. Uh, if you had the right equipment, you could influence that pacemaker and, uh, maliciously. So as 3D printing gets more sophisticated and, and you're taking and combining multiple mediums, you know, when, we, when we talk about things like creating an organ, different tissues, uh, and maybe even introducing technology into the organ down the road, I do think there's a real risk there as far as having complete end-to-end control of that production process and not only knowing exactly what materials are going into it, but how that technology interfaces with that uh, organ or whatever it would be called um, so that there you, you reduce the risk of a malicious actor being able to take control of that device post um, implementation. You know, for people that might be getting into 3D printing, whether it's personal or an organization, uh, how would uh, like someone like IT Audit Labs or, or, or organization like IT Audit Labs help, help um, I mean, a 3D pin- printing manufacturer, you know, kind of safeguard their IP or, or their, their production floor f- from um, that being a vector for a cyber attack or even like a dentist's office being an entry point for, for a larger cyber attack. I, I think in, in some cases and, and Nick and Matt might have some, some other ideas, but really just taking that risk-based approach of what, what are, what's the data that's needs to be protected and 
how is that data moving into, through, or out of the organization? Yeah, I would agree. I think, uh, you know, when we're doing these reviews, you know, it generally stays the same because at the end of the day, we could either start with code review. We can review that before, right? It's going to a machine, right? If it's a big manufacturing company, you can do a penetration test um, and, and just continue to make sure the organization is taking steps to protect themselves, you know, from, from any sort of attack, you know, before it gets to, let's say, the 3D printer. But Matt, you probably would go even a lot deeper than that. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd look at, you know, how, again, how critical is some of the, the 3D printing, you know, the type of data and, um, so if you're segmenting, you know, the network into its own IOT devices and, you know, what taking a look at, you know, least privilege model, finding out what, you know, what are the permissions needed to um, upload, download to, you know, the type of network connectivity. It, it really comes down to the type of data, I think, you know, and that's how you got to, you know, evaluate your risk. And uh, again, if it's, you know, highly um you know, if the intellectual property is something highly secretive, you, you definitely got to, you know, look at, okay, how do we want to adjust our network and configure it to one, make sure we are operating efficiently to where security doesn't choke the life out of operations and then vice versa. You know, if, if you, if you got security too weak, then you've, you've, you've increased your risk. So it's just finding that fine balance to how can the business, you know, successfully uh, operate securely. Um, and that's, there's always going to be that give and take between the security and operation side. But I think um, it just really comes down to the type of data um, that you're working with and what type of, uh, um, you know, risk you're willing to accept. And Josh, you know, as, as we look at the future, I think things are, they're already changing, right? They're already changing really fast. But with the introduction of mainstream AI uh, or generative AI, and where we are today. And as those tools continue to improve, 3D printing improves, um, I think we're gonna see the machine to machine interactions over the next 25 years or so where they're using blockchain and smart contracts to interact with each other, autonomously make decisions, uh, build things that, that, that they think they need to perform a function um, all based on high-level design concepts that 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 they're given. I, I don't think we're there yet in the mainstream, but that's definitely on the table uh, being discussed. So that will definitely require cybersecurity, data security, intellectual security, all built into those models, and and how we secure that in the future is is really going to be a paradigm shift because we won't be able to actually be hands-on and look into all of those environments where you're essentially trusting the automation and the robotics to perform some of those based on guidelines that um, humans or uh, other machines have given them. So kind of a a futuristic topic, but uh, certainly one that's that, that's pretty interesting and, and not far away. I think I got a good vision with that. It and it has to do with the word Skynet. You know, <laughs> you're going to have Skynet AI. It's got it's pulling T2 right out of the bath, the titanium <laughs> bath, and create 3D printers and AI. Here we go. We're there. Well, yeah, that, that's the scary. <laughs> thing. 
<laughs> man, is that, and it really, to me, it's kind of a parallel with that yeah. because we truly have an uncapped market. We, in 10 years, we could have, be having a totally different conversation, 15 years, sure. um, right. And, 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 and in change the, the security strategy, right. As it, as any technology that this conversation is going to keep happening you know, you might even change every six months now as a new printer comes out or a new technology for that printer, right? Whatever have you. But uh, the conversation is certainly going to continue to go uh, as the technology changes. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how AI and 3D printing work together. Not to be doomsday joke there, I you know, I made with Skynet, but it was just kind of like, a, you know, with how creative AI, well, creative or how um, it seems to be creative, you know, where it shows these paintings or videos or deep fakes or whatever it's doing. But just with that type of modeling, it's able to do create a, you know, all right, Siri, create me a, um, uh, you know, YubiKey holder that's this size, this and whatever. And then the AI all of a sudden, boom, created the STL 3D image for you and then automatically kicked it over with automation to your 3D printer. Yeah. I, you know, is it going to get down to that point and um, I don't know. It's exciting, scary, all sorts of uh, emotions and feelings all at the same time. But I, I think there's some pretty neat stuff there between what AI and 3D printing could do, assuming T2 doesn't come out of the bath. I saw a, a, an interesting implementation of 3D printing where someone had programmed a 3D printer to do some handwriting, right? I, I think it was around... Um, Instead of typing out a homework assignment, it was handwriting the, the homework assignments, um, which was pretty interesting. But I, I think the the kind of cool cybersecurity crossover there would be taking a picture of some someone's signature and then being able to use AI to, to model that signature and reproduce that on a 3D printer. Before we leave, if somebody wants to get into 3D printing right now, what should they do? Is there like a printer that's relatively inexpensive or, or something that they should do or a printer that they should get to get into it? Yeah, it's, you know, the printing world right now is kind of a, it, there's so many manufacturers and so many different types out there. You know, good old YouTube. I would do some digging and research onto YouTube um, to find kind of what your interests are. But, you know, some of the, 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 the brands that come to mind for, you know, a, a very simple, almost point and click print kind of 2D style it's becoming is, you know, Bamboo Labs is a, a really good one. And Creality has some um, higher end ones. Um, but, you know, I would take a look at those spaces and not to not to knock Prusa by any means, because um, I, I own one. Um, that's definitely one to consider. But I would say, you know, take a look at those three companies, but, you know, do your own research on YouTube and kind of what uh, you can find as to um, you know, the simplest approach, but those, pro those printers are getting close to just good old 2d printing because a couple of years ago, just only two years ago, I had to use a piece of paper to level the thing. And, uh, you had to manually switch out stuff and there's a lot more automation behind these printers now. And, um, for a very limited cost of between 300 and 600 bucks for a pretty automated printer now. Yeah, thanks for that, Matt. It, 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 what it did is allow somebody like myself that might not be a pioneer in the space to to get one and and you know do whatever do whatever I want print you know all kinds of things that you know guys like you have done already. So uh, I sure I'm enjoying it. Matt, what's your next printer? Matt, you can say I just finished printing the one behind me or printing. Build yeah, out. right now. <laughs> um, 
I, I, I think, um, you know, I, I would probably look at something with multiple print heads and multiple colors, you know, can do multiple colors um, and it's enclosed. So uh, as much as I like my Prusa and, um, you know, and the ease of fixability behind it, I guess, unless they're coming out with something like that, I'm probably looking at one of the higher end Crealities or Bamboo Labs uh, that has that multi-color and multi-head kind of print aspect to it. What about you, Nick? I, I'm set up here. Uh, you know, with the one I got, I have a Bamboo Labs P1S and it is enclosed. Um, and, and honestly, this, when I set up, and I blame my whole 3D printing endeavors on on Matt. He's the one that peer pressured me into this, uh, this uh, hobby. And it, it is awesome. So I'm happy with this one because it, it's as close as you can get to plug and play, right? I got it, took it out of the box. I think I was printing in, uh, let's say, 15 minutes, right? And I can, it's got a mobile app. You can take a file, put it on there, boom, you send it to the printer and, it, and it's going and it's quiet and it's really fast. So uh, unless something crazy comes out, changes in the technology, uh, this one, uh, it does everything I need it to do. Right. Yeah, he was showing me 10 pounds of material he had already printed by the time I got maybe my uh, plate installed. That's true. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, so there's a couple of ways to go about it. But yeah, um, there's certainly not a wrong one. And if anybody wants to get into it, I say go for it. Uh, get yourself a printer and, and you know, get into the hobby, start making things for yourself and, and see where it goes. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for your time today. As always, it's been a it's been a stimulating and uh, thought provoking conversation. You've been listening to uh, myself, Joshua Schmidt, Eric Brown, Nick Mellum, and Matt Starlin, IT Audit Labs. You're listening to the Audit. We hope you join us for our next episode. Stay in touch. You have been listening to the Audit, presented by IT Audit Labs. We are experts at assessing risk and compliance while providing administrative and technical controls to improve our clients' data security. Our threat assessments find the soft spots before the bad guys do, identifying likelihood and impact, while all our security control assessments rank the level of maturity relative to the size of your organization. Thanks to our devoted listeners and followers, as well as our producer, Joshua J. Schmidt, and our audio-video editor, Cameron Hill. You can stay up to date on the latest cybersecurity topics by giving us a like and a follow on our socials and subscribing to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you source your security content. 